You know, friends, throughout history, there have been special times when men and women have been uniquely moved by words. Words of inspiration, words of hope, words of consequence. Let me see if you recognize some of these great words that have moved people over the centuries. Words such as the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. Words such as Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Words such as FDR's speech declaring war on Japan prior to World War II. Words such as President Bush standing at the World Trade Center declaring, we hear you, the world hears you. And soon the people who took down these buildings will hear from all of us. Powerful words spoken at different times throughout history. Words of of consequence. And, And like these examples, today our passage could rightly be described as words of great consequence. Words that have literally moved millions of people over the centuries. Today we come to a passage that could rightly be described as the Apostle John's uh, pinnacle, the pinnacle of his testimony, his, his magnum opus, if you will, his greatest explanation of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a passage that's familiar. In fact, most people around the world are, are familiar with the term John 3.16. Whether you're a believer or a non-believer, many people have seen that passage. It's a passage that's not only familiar, it's a passage that's beloved. In fact, I would venture to bet almost all of us in this room, many of you watching at home this morning, have probably committed these words to memory. It's often the first Bible verse that many children memorize growing up. It's a passage that's been proven in effectiveness. Effectiveness in, in terms of missionaries often using this as the very first passage in the Bible that they will translate into a foreign language to help convey the hope of the gospel. It's a passage proven in effectiveness for countless preachers who have taught these great words. It's a passage that evangelists have used all around the world in their outreach crusades sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. The the famous Protestant reformer Martin Luther once described this passage as the gospel in miniature. The gospel in miniature. In other words, friends, our passage this morning is the very essence of the good news. The very heart of, of what it is to be a follower of Jesus is found here in these great words. Today we're in the passage that is known as John 3:16 through 21. It's a great passage. It's a passage that follows Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, which we looked at last week. That, that powerful conversation where Jesus described to Nicodemus that each one of us must be born again. We need to be born again. We need to have new birth. Our our hearts need to be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can enter into a right relationship with our Creator God, a a saving relationship. That's what it means to be 
born again. And, and Jesus, having just described this great truth to Nicodemus, now we find the Apostle John and his testimony here in the Gospel of John commenting on that conversation, sharing more, elaborating on the truth that he observed very likely in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. This passage, verses 16 through 21, is rightly understood as John's description and explanation of what came before in Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Let me ask you this morning, some of you have your Bibles open. Many of you at home may have your Bibles open. And some of you probably see these verses highlighted in red letters, red font, symbolizing the words of Jesus Christ. But friends, I would argue this morning, and many scholars would argue that it's more accurate for us to understand these words, not as the words of Jesus, but the words of the Apostle John commenting on what Jesus has just shared with Nicodemus. This is John explaining to us this morning what Jesus had just shared with Nicodemus so that we can understand more significantly the the impact, the consequence of these amazing words. That, That doesn't mean these words are any less inspired. They are still Holy Spirit inspired truth given to the Apostle John for our benefit to help us understand what Jesus was talking about when he explained the need for us to be born again. And so this morning we turn to John 3, 16 through 21, and we find the Apostle John's commentary on these profound truths. Let's read this passage together, and then I want to highlight three aspects of the gospel, the good news that we find here in John's commentary. John begins in verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What a great passage. One of the most powerful passages, if not the most powerful passage in all of Scripture. Here is John's commentary on these profound truths that Jesus had just spoken to Nicodemus. And here in this passage this morning, I want to highlight for us three aspects of the good news that that John brings out here in this passage. Three aspects of the good news, the gospel that, that John highlights here. Number one, John highlights for us God's love for the lost. God's love for the lost. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Friends, have you ever considered 
just how great God's love is. The greatness of God's love. We, we can begin to understand in, in more significance the, the greatness of God's love as we look at this passage, and, and in, in particular as we look at three specific words here, three fascinating words here in verse 16. Words of great consequence. The, the, the first word I want to highlight is a word that we often just look right over, but it's, it's extremely consequential for our understanding of what John is conveying to us here. It's the word so. The word so. I, I bet you've never thought about the significance of the word so before. The, the word so in the Greek is, is utos. And the, and the word utos in the Greek can, can be translated two ways. It, it can be a word that emphasizes degree or intensity. So, so in other words, maybe John is saying here, for God so loved the world. He's talking about the the expansiveness of God's love, the greatness of God's love, the the immensity. God so loved the world. But so, utos, can also be translated in terms of an analysis of what came before, of what just came before. And and if you translate the so in this way, like, like many scholars do, many translators translate John 3.16, this way, it would read in the Greek, for in this way God loved the world. In what way? In the way that we just saw in verses 14 through 15. Remember last week in Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus ended that conversation with Nicodemus by sharing that great illustration of the the bronze snake in the wilderness that that Moses lifted up. And when the Israelites looked upon the snake, the, the object of their curse, it was in looking at the snake that their curse was lifted. They were saved. And we saw Jesus use that illustration in in description of how the Son of Man, he too would be lifted up. He would be lifted up on the cross. And all who look to him, whoever believes in him, Jesus said in verse 15, will be saved. And so here John is, is likely pointing back to that great discussion with Nicodemus and, and making the case for in this way, In lifting up the sun on the cross, God so loved the world. Translators debate what is is the most accurate way to convey this word. Does does it speak of God's immense love? Does it speak of the, the illustration of God's love of lifting up his son on the cross? Friends, I think both of those things are true. They're obviously both true, but I think John had had probably both of those concepts in mind when he translated this passage. God's immense love, and in this way, lifting up his son, God demonstrated his love to the world. The the second word I want to highlight for us here in verse 16 is that word world itself. World, cosmos. As you can see here on stage this morning, we have an illustration of the cosmos, the world. That word in the Greek can refer to the created world, the globe that that we habitat here. It it can refer to the people of the world, God's love for the, the people of the world. It can also refer to the systemic opposition of the world to God. 
systemic opposition to God. We hear a lot in our culture today about the idea of systemic racism. Friends, systemic racism is not our culture's problem. Systemic opposition to God is our culture's problem. Racism is a symptom of a deeper heart issue, our opposition to God. And the word cosmos speaks to that, this this fallen world system that lives in opposition to our creator. And it's very interesting when, when we see this word cosmos or world in the New Testament. This word is found 186 times throughout the New Testament. And friends, did you know every single time we find the word cosmos, world, it's always with sinful connotations attached to it. It's always in the context of describing the fallenness, the lostness, the sin of this world 186 times. So in other words, when John uses the word cosmos here, what he is saying is literally, for God so loved the sinful world. God so loved this fallen, sinful, rebellious world. And what is the evidence of God's love? How how did he love this sinful world? Well, John goes on to tell us that he gave his only son. This is the third word I want to highlight for us here in our passage in verse 16. Only. Only son. The the word only here in the Greek is monoyenes. Monoyenes, it means only, unique, without equal. Some of you may have uh, memorized John 3.16 as a young child, and and in older translations, it often used the word only begotten son. How many of you remember memorizing John 3.16, his only begotten son? Friends, that word begotten is not in the original Greek. It's a poor translation. No one uses that anymore. The, the word only here, monoyenes, throughout Scripture, it's used nine times in the New Testament, and every time it's used, it speaks of only or unique or without equal. It, it has nothing to do with being begotten. We know Jesus was not begotten. He is the eternal Son of God. We saw that all the way back in our first message of this series. Jesus is part of the eternal triune Godhead. He has always existed but he's always existed as God's one and only unique son. And so when John uses this word to explain what God has given us, he's, he's essentially telling us that God has given us his best. How did God love us? By giving us his best. He gave us his only, his unique, his one and only son. He gave the best that he had to give. The ancient Jews would have heard these words and they would have immediately thought back to that great story in the Old Testament. The the story in Genesis chapter 22 of of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, his only son, his, his unique son, the son of promise, the son that was miraculously given to him and his wife, a, a child that should have never been born because they were well past childbearing age. But God blessed Abraham with this one unique, special son. And then God tested Abraham's faith and said, Abraham, I want you to to lay your son Isaac down on an altar, and I want you, Abraham, to sacrifice your son's life for me. 
to prove your love for me. Imagine that. And Abraham, who who walked by faith throughout his entire life, can you imagine this man thinking, Lord, I I waited my whole life for this miraculous child, and and now you're telling me to, to sacrifice him and give him back to you. But God, you've always been faithful. And so, Lord, I'm going to trust you even in this. And so Abraham took Isaac and and they went to the top of a hill and he built an altar and he laid his son Isaac on the altar. And as he raised the knife, God said, Stop! Abraham, now I know that you love me. And Abraham looked to the side and there in a thicket, God had provided a ram, a substitute, a sacrifice in the place of, of Isaac. And in this great story, this great event, God was foreshadowing for all of us the perfect lamb to come. His unique son who who would be given as our substitute, lifted up on the cross as verses 14 and 15 describe, all because of God's great love for us, for this fallen sinful world. This is why Kent Hughes in his commentary on the Gospel of John, verse 16, he he calls this verse the greatest explanation for the greatest illustration. Hughes goes on to share this this powerful rendition of John 3.16. He says, God, the greatest lover, so loved, the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company that he gave the greatest act, his only son, the greatest gift, that whoever, the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest attraction, Jesus, should not perish the greatest promise of all, but the greatest difference, have the greatest clarity, the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. Friends, isn't that good? Don't ever doubt. Don't ever doubt the greatness of God's love for you. For God so loved the world. The second thing that John highlights here in our passage this morning, the second aspect of the gospel that he brings out for us in this great commentary, verses 17 and 18, he highlights God's Son. God's Son given for our salvation. Verses 17 through 18 read, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Friends, we need to understand something here this morning, very important. The reality for all of us here this morning is is we have a significant problem. We all have a serious problem. Those of you watching at home this morning all have a very serious problem. I want to do a little illustration together this morning to to illustrate this serious situation that we find ourselves in. This is an exercise that we do here at Lakes Free at least once a year, and and I know many of you are new to our church, and so we want to make sure you, you get to participate in this as well because it's so important for us to understand 
the depth of our problem here. But, but here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to reach over or, or lean over towards the person sitting next to you, and I want you to, to smell the person sitting next to you. All right, go ahead and do this. We do this at least once a year. This is important. At home, if you're in your living room, smell the person sitting next to you. Go ahead, do it right now. All right? Now, now as you're smelling the person sitting next to you, let me ask you something. What do you smell? What do you smell? I'll tell you what you smell. You either smell that person stink or you smell something covering up their stink, right? Am I right? You either smell their stink or something covering up their stink. But the reality is, as human beings, we all stink. That's our fundamental nature. We stink. That's just the way it is. I'm sorry. You stink or you cover up your stink. But here's the thing. We don't just stink physically... But the Bible tells us, more seriously, we stink spiritually. Because the reality is, is every single one of us is infected with a spiritual disease called sin. A disease that, that corrupts us from the inside out. A disease which, which festers within us, which, which pollutes us, which, which causes us to reek in the nostrils of our holy and perfect God. This spiritual disease called sin separates us from our holy God because God is morally pure. God is righteous. God knows no sin. And because of our sin, our stink, we are eternally separated from God and His holiness. That's just the way it is. There's probably no more vivid picture of this dire predicament than the one that's found in Isaiah chapter 64. In Isaiah 64, verses 6 through 7, we read, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some translate that filthy rags. In the Hebrew, it literally speaks of rags used for cleaning up human waste product bodily excretions. I'll let you use your imagination on that one. In the eyes of our holy God, we have all become like polluted, filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, our sin, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who who rouses himself to, to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. Why? Because God is holy. He's righteous, And he cannot stand our sin. And so he's hidden his face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Friends, have you ever held an ice cube in your hand? What's going to happen? That ice cube's going to melt away and disappear forever. It'll be destroyed. And that is the same as our sin. We are destroyed by our sin. God tells us our situation is dire. And as John explains here in verses 17 through 18, John says, we are condemned already. This isn't something that we can earn. This condemnation isn't something that we earn through bad behavior. No, this condemnation is something that we inherit at birth. We are born into this condemnation. We are born sinners. We are born in rebellion against our holy God. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. As Paul says in Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous. No, not one. All of us fall short of God's holy standards. 
And as John says, we are condemned as a result of this. The, the word condemned here is the opposite of eternal life. John says in Jesus we have eternal life, whoever believes in him. But, but those who do not believe in the Son are condemned, condemned already. Condemned to what, Jason? Condemned to eternal death, eternal separation from God, eternal separation in a place called hell. We don't like to talk about hell very much these days, do we? It's not very popular in our culture to, to talk about the idea that there are going to be some who will be lost for all of eternity, separated from God in a place called hell. But you know something, friends, we need to talk about hell. Not to glory in hell, not to revel in hell, not to beat up non-believers with the concept of hell. No, the, the great apologist Francis Schaeffer used to say the doctrine of hell must be taught with tears. We, we need to be honest about this reality, but it should break our hearts. It, it should move us with love and compassion for those lost people in our lives who, who are facing an eternal destiny separated from God. Friends, do you know that Jesus himself spoke about hell three times as much as he spoke about heaven. He talked about hell three times more often than he spoke about heaven. Why would he do that? I think it's because Jesus, more than any other, knew the reality of hell. He knew it was a real place, a real place that, that real people could, could really end up in, and he really didn't want that to happen. And so he spoke of this reality. People sometimes ask me, Jason, well, how bad is hell? I'll tell you something. Hell is so bad that it costs the Son of God his very life to keep you from going there. For God so loved the world. And this is where the gospel comes into play once again. Verse 18 tells us that whoever believes in him, in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. The, the word believes here is, is an important word. It's a word that we've already studied here in our series in John. John has used this word at least a half dozen times so far in the first three chapters. And, and if you remember in my earlier descriptions of this word believe or believes, th this word is about more than just an intellectual faith. It's more than just an intellectual assent. Oh, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. That's not what John is talking about. The, the word believe as it's used by John is more than an intellectual assent. Genuine belief or genuine faith is about a wholehearted trust, a total commitment, a complete surrender of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Friends, have you believed in Jesus in this way? Have you surrendered your whole life to Jesus? Have you given everything over to him and to his authority? That's the kind of belief that, that John tells us leads to salvation. It's a belief that trusts Jesus with our all. In the mid-19th century, there was a, a famous tightrope walker, exhibitionist named the great Blondine, Charles Blondine. In September of 1860, he accomplished a tremendous feat, crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 
Niagara Falls on a tightrope, a a rope stretched out 1,100 feet, 160 feet above those great falls. And Charles Blondine, the great Blondine, first crossed Niagara Falls on foot over the tightrope, over the falls. Next, the great Blondine put on a pair of stilts as you see in the, in the newspaper article picture here from September of 1860, and he crossed the falls on the tightrope walking on stilt. Can you believe that? And then, then the great Blondine took a wheelbarrow, and he pushed a wheelbarrow across the tightrope. And friends, as you can imagine, every time he crossed with these great feats, the crowds watching on both sides of the banks just went crazy. I mean, this, this would have been amazing to, to see. And as the crowd was cheering and as Blondine crossed with the wheelbarrow that last time, Blondine said, and now for my final act, let me ask, who believes Who believes that I can push a human being across the tightrope in my wheelbarrow? And the crowd went nuts. Yeah, we believe it. Do it. Go. And then Blondine asked this question. Who will be my first volunteer? (laughs) And as you can imagine, all the hands in the crowd went down. And the crowd became very silent. They believed he could do it, but they weren't willing to entrust themselves to Charles Blondine. Friends, imagine you were there in that crowd that day. And imagine as you were watching these great feats, all of a sudden a a tremendous forest fire broke out. And a raging forest fire began to, to engulf the forest surrounding the Niagara Falls and the Niagara River and and here you were trapped between this raging forest fire and the cliffs and and there was no escape. Either the fire was going to get you or you were going to have to leap to your death off the cliffs but there was no escape. There was only one path that would lead to life and that was to trust in Blondine and his wheelbarrow that he could carry you safely to life. Friends, the Apostle John says this is our situation. We are condemned already because of sin. The forest fire of our sin is raging. It's coming for us. It will destroy all of us. But Jesus says, I have made a way. Will you trust me? Whoever believes in me, whoever gives themselves wholly to me, trusting that I can lead them safely, To eternal life, that person shall be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Friends, let me ask you, will you put your life in Jesus' hands today? Will you trust him wholeheartedly for your salvation? The, The third aspect of the good news that John highlights for us in our passage this morning, John tells us that God has has given us his brilliance for our blindness. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this age, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Paul says this world has been blinded by our great spiritual enemy, the devil. 
He's blinded us to the truth. He's blinded us to the light of the gospel. And here in verses 19 through 21, John shares with us the fruit of this spiritual blindness. He he says, for everyone, uh, he, he says, and this is the judgment, this is the verdict, the light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. When I was a freshman in college, I had the opportunity to go on a month-long trip for an anthropology class down to Ecuador. During that trip, we spent a week living in the jungles of Ecuador, outside Shell, Ecuador. And, and I spent the week with a, with a group of four other students living in a native long hut in the middle of the jungle. I mean, way out in the middle of the jungle. I mean, this was, this was primitive native culture living. I remember that first night going to bed, myself and these three other students, we were in this, this small room, maybe six foot by eight foot room with, with bamboo wood walls and thatched roofing. And, and I remember there laying in our sleeping bags huddled next to one another. One of us turned on our flashlight and shined it on the walls. That was a big mistake. When that light shined on that wall of that hut, I saw thousands of creepy crawlies scatter from the light, running to the hide in the darkness, creepy, crawly, slithering things. And I remember, I remember every night I went to bed, I put my head inside my sleeping bag and I prayed, God, please don't let me wake up. I don't want to feel anything crawling on me tonight, Jesus. But friends, just like those creepy, crawly things go running from the light, John tells us this is the reality for those who are blinded by sin, blinded by this fallen, lost world. We flee from the light. We run from the light. We, we hide in the darkness. We, we hate the light. As Robert Pine in his book, Humanity and Sin, describes it, because of the sinfulness of our hearts, we tend to run from God rather than to him. We cannot produce works of righteousness apart from his spirit, for we act in accordance with our own desires, and our desires are evil. Friends, the key verse in here is is this second verse, we cannot produce works of righteousness apart from his spirit. As we saw last week in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, if there was ever a religious man, a man who had done human good deeds and works of righteousness. It was Nicodemus. And yet Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, it's not going to cut it. You need to be born again, born from above. You need to have the Spirit of God come in and regenerate your heart and cleanse you from the inside out. You can't produce works of righteousness on your own. You need a supernatural transformation. And as John tells us here, without this spirit within us, we run from the light. We hate from the light. Hate the light. That is the reality of this world that we live in. But there's good news. John says in verse 21, But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What does it mean when John says, whoever does what is true? Friends, in the context of our passage, to do what is true is to trust in Jesus Christ. In other words, John is saying here, whoever trusts in Jesus Christ for their salvation, 
Whoever does what is true, whoever trusts in Jesus, comes to the light. They come to Jesus so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out in God. In other words, that the fruit of our good works is the evidence that we have been born again by the Spirit of God. We can't produce this righteousness on our own. It only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, remember, this is why Jesus said to Nicodemus last week, you must be born again or born from above. Because it's not about what we do. It's about what God has done for us through the Holy Spirit moving in our lives. And so, friends, when we, when we think about these last two weeks, we could summarize John's message here in John chapter 3 like this. The good news of the gospel is about God regenerating our hearts or making them new through the work of the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus Christ, so that we might come out of the darkness to live in the light, displaying works of the light all to the glory of God. Has that been your experience, friends? Would you like that to be your experience? I want to close this morning with a, with a powerful story, a true story. On April 15, 1912, one of the, the great tragedies of the modern era took place, the sinking of the Titanic. Over 1,500 people lost their lives in this great tragedy. One of the passengers on that voyage was a man named John Harper. John Harper and his little daughter Nan. We, we don't know much about how John Harper spent that voyage once it set sail from England across the Atlantic until the moment the iceberg struck, but we know at least three things that took place between the moment that iceberg struck and when the Titanic sunk under the waters. We know first that, that John Harper gave his little girl Nan to a lifeboat attendant and, and put her safely in a lifeboat to be rescued. Secondly, we know that John Harper took off his own life jacket and gave it to another passenger so that they might have a greater chance to be saved. And then thirdly, we know that John Harper spent the last minutes of his life treading water, proclaiming the hope of the gospel, salvation in Jesus Christ to all of his fellow passengers who were about to perish in the icy waters of the North Atlantic. How do we know this? Because a couple weeks after the Titanic sunk, a man stood up in a church in Brampton, Ontario, Canada, and declared, I was John Harper's last convert. He put his trust in Jesus, listening to John Harper proclaim the gospel. Friends, you won't find mention of John Harper in most accounts of the Titanic tragedy. And that's understandable because his is a story of triumph. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will not perish, but will have everlasting life. You know something, friends? When that Titanic set sail, there were three classes of passengers. First, second, and third. But when the Titanic sank, you know something? There were only two. Saved and lost. Where do you stand with the Lord today, friends? Do you have a right relationship with our Creator, a saving relationship with our Creator? 
Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Jesus says, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I pray that you know the eternal life that is found in Jesus. Let's close in prayer this morning, and then I'm going to invite our worship team to lead us in one last special song. Lord, we thank you this morning for the greatest of news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for how you have sent your Son into this world to die for our sins so that we might be cleansed and forgiven so that your Holy Spirit might do his work of regeneration in our hearts and and make us new, born again, born from above, born by your power. This truth is available to all who believe in Jesus, to all who wholeheartedly trust in him for their salvation. And Lord, I pray that there's nobody here this morning. I pray there's nobody at home watching this morning who, who would reject that good news, who would reject the offer of life that's available in you. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us, for your great sacrifice, for your incredible love. Lord, I pray that all of us would trust in you for our salvation and live to declare the hope of your salvation to a world that so desperately needs it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.